Welcome to Two Dope Boys in a Podcast. I'm Phil McKenzie, running solo again on our latest On Point. And On Point is where we highlight someone getting it right. And we're actually joined by two someones getting it right. Um, Writer-director Shan Nicholson and Roxini, music artist and activist. Glad to have you guys in the studio. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to tell a personal story. (laughs) <laughs> which you've heard on the phone as I was laudatory in, in booking you on the show. I went to see a movie called Downtown Calling many years ago um, in Brooklyn. They had a, a private screening for it at the Knitting Factory in BK. So kind of that Woundsburg, Greenpoint kind of mm-hmm. border for those who are not overly familiar with the great borough of Brooklyn. And this movie inspired me and my friends who were there with with me. Um, for those who haven't seen the film, it's, it's an amazing story of a New York that is sadly not with us in from a cultural perspective. I'm glad that the crime is, is not with us as a born and bred New Yorker. So I was a kid when many of these things were were being discussed in the film. This is a late 70s, early 80s movie. And, you know, I, I always felt like this was a film that was inspiring it it's a film that will kind of push you in a direction to live your creativity and i wanted to talk to the man who brought that project to fruition <laughs> so that's the 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 very modest backdrop of, of why we're here talking to you guys so uh after that kind of lengthy intro kind of give us a sense of why you did downtown calling and you also did another amazing film called rubble kings again dealing with the New York that no longer exists. So maybe take them one at a time or, or if you feel you can take them both collectively, like what inspired you to look at this particular time and era in New York city? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for your, uh, for, for the, the kind words about the film. Um, I'll, I'll start with downtown calling since it, that was my first one. Um, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up here, during that period and I kind of got to experience the tail end of that era um I was you know graffiti artist for many years and I uh, started off in the hip hop when it was a baby in 82 and my neighborhood was I, I grew up like a couple blocks away from Queensbridge Project so it was always like all kinds of music happening all you know it was just like center of you know all this incredible movement that was happening um so I kind of you know, grew up around it essentially, and um, I mean, New York was an incredible place at the, during that time. You know, there was danger and opportunity around every corner. There was just this, in, you know, electric energy where anything was kind of possible, and but it was also sort of like paired with neglect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, in my neighborhood particularly, it was a, it was a, uh, it was an industrial neighborhood, um, and you know, there was just like garbage strewn you know all over the streets it was abandoned buildings and all that stuff but as a kid you know you looked at it and you're like my god this is fun so like i remember like this one time this like van pulled up and there was like they were just dumping shit basically so they had like a they threw out a sofa they threw out a refrigerator they threw out all this stuff and just drove off and and they left it in the middle of the sidewalk those kids were like Oh shit! That sofa's like we could just like play on that shit all day. You know what I mean? And so it was like we we you, there was all these like yeah, yeah, fun yeah. ways to use you know to make something out of nothing essentially. And I think that's like kind of the spirit that I've always um, appreciated. It's always something that I've 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 uh, 
try to strive for in my work is it's it's um it's about taking essentially it's like taking something and making something out of nothing and 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 using your sort of um your creativity to to have fun you know um there was that countless times i remember we were there was this abandoned building that was like two blocks away from where we lived and we used to stack up mattresses and jump out of the second floor window onto the mattress yeah. and spend all day doing that and it was just fun you know it was just like something that we did that was just like it was just <laughs> it was fun to us and then after a while this is where i feel like where style comes into things and, and where like hip-hop and and punk and all these different elements kind of had that element to it where it's like all right so you're you're jumping off this out of this window onto this mattress so the first 10 times you're just like i can't believe this i'm jumping out of a window onto a mattress but then you get bored of that and then you're like what if i jump out and i hold my leg and do a pose in air yeah. and then like i'm gonna do a flip outside of them you know so that like it yeah. becomes like a you competitive thing you know what i mean yeah. and all the kids are like oh i can do it this way i can do it that way and so that's kind of like where where the that initial sort of like energy comes from i don't know if that makes any sense um so i started off in music I was a DJ for many years. I still DJ um, and a music producer. The idea, the initial idea from Downtown Calling actually came from a DJ set. I was uh, spinning um, at this club downtown. I forgot what it was. And I was doing an old school set of like this era of music that is not sort of classified. It's like they're hip hop, but it's not necessarily rapping. It's, it's club music, but it's not necessarily house music. Uh, I'm talking about songs like you know ESG's Moody or yeah. or Cavern Liquid Liquid uh, you know Din Dada by George Kranz these are these are classic you know you could play them at any hip hop party back in the day and people would go nuts but they're not necessarily hip hop songs yeah um, and but but heavily sampled heavily hev- exactly, influenced yes, like you know, yeah these are set it off these are classic tracks yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I so play these tracks as well I DJ so yeah oh, right on, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so I play go. a lot of that stuff yeah yeah so you know so people kept coming up to me and were like man I know this track for one reason or another like you know I heard this didn't Missy S. Elliott sample this thing mm-hmm. or you know people that understood the tracks from a different context um and it kept happening throughout the night. Like people were just coming up and and, and asking me, oh, "Who did this track?" And, and in many cases, this was back in the days when I was still rocking vinyl. And I don't know if you remember. Like, I mean, they used to do like bootlegs of like Liquid Liquid Cavern and yeah. and Moody, and it would just be a blue label, and all it say would be Moody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there would be no information about the label, label or nothing the, or the artist or anything. No liner like notes. That. No, no nothing, liner notes. Yeah. Or nothing like that. So I was just like, man, like. I, this is a mystery, right? Everybody knows this music, but don't, nobody really knows the bands behind this music. And so a light bulb went off, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool to do, like, and I was a super big fan of Behind the Music for VH1. I was like, wouldn't it be cool to do a Behind the Music on New York uh, club music? And at this point, it wasn't just about, you know, hip-hop. It was about just that sort of window of music that I'm talking about that didn't really fit into one category or another. Um, so that was the sort of initial premise for it. And I had this, you know how when you have one of those ideas that just, you can't yeah. shake it. It's just like, it just follows you. And I never made <laughs> any films before. I was just sort of like total novice. And, and I have a couple filmmaker friends and I was like, I have this idea. What do I do? <laughs> Cause I, I, at the time I was like, I'm not going to make this film. Obviously I have to go to film school and I have to learn how to do it. And I might as well just like tell somebody that does make films, this great idea that I had and let yeah. them do it. You know, I didn't, I had no ambition uh, to make the film 
And so I met up with my buddy, shout out to my boy Abdul. He's an editor, and he uh, we sat and, and had a beer, and I kind of pitched him this idea, and he was just like, oh, my God, that's a really great idea. And then so I was like, what do I do next? And he was like, well, you know, why don't you write a one-pager, and then, you know, maybe we could cut, like, a yeah. sizzle reel like, for it. like, what the fuck is a one-pager? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I had no idea about any of this stuff. Um, but, we, you know, I did. I, I sat down, and I just, like, put pen to paper, put my thoughts together. Uh, did a little bit of research and, you know, I started to find, oh, I was like, wait a second, you know, like, I didn't know George Kranz was German, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know, like, ESG was, like, these four girls from the Bronx. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know Liquid Liquid were these four, like, post-punk white dudes that were, like, you know, it just, it was, like, this weird sort of light bulb went off and, and, and so the more and more I started doing research, the more and more I started to realize that this club, this music came out of this one particular scene downtown and it was it wasn't just this music it was like hip hop it was disco it was the art scene it was street art it was all of these different elements that just happened to be partying and hanging out together uh during this really golden period like you know this little 5 6 year window where all this stuff was kind of bubbling and i was like well okay that's a bigger idea you know that's 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 more of a but again i was just like this isn't i'm not going to do this this is like somebody else's project but it was almost like um following the breadcrumbs right yeah, and, I, yeah. and i was just like i was kind of addicted to the idea and i was just like ah, maybe i'll spend another little bit more time on it and then no, and then i'll spend all day on it and then i'll spend two days on it weeks on it three weeks and it just went on like that and i learned pretty much the whole process of filmmaking in the same manner like i learned how to edit by sitting over my buddy's shoulder you know watching him on final cut i learned how to shoot by sitting <laughs> you know i basically hustled it you know yeah. for, for for many many years and you know, uh, I got lucky enough to get some really great interviews early on, and, and that led to other interviews that led to archive, that led to, uh, you know, discovering music and bands and, and all these great relationships and all these great stories that, you know, haven't been told. Um, in, in that process, mm -hmm. like, when you, when you highlight, because when you watch the film, it all s comes together, you know, like, it's, it's a very, like, cohesive story. But it's funny, I can't watch it now. Really? But yeah, because I've grown so much as a filmmaker. I'm just like, oh, that's so, that makes no sense. Like, why did I cut it like that? It's Is crazy. It? I love it. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. Like, I love yeah. downtown calling. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, it, well, you know, from from our perspective, uh -huh. I've heard I've heard this from artists and musicians. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, they, I can't watch myself on like you know, yeah. film. Where I can't yeah. listen yeah. to my early tracks. Yeah. So I feel where you're coming from. Yeah. But for for as a viewer, right, it, it feels like cohesive, and now looking back at that time you know it's not like today where we document everything right. you know we yeah. we have film studios on our phones and we record everything it's instagram it's snapchat it's right. video it's pictures sure like finding those those archives you know finding that old grainy footage like how did that mm -hmm. like it seems simple when you're watching it but <laughs> it's like without those images yeah it's hard to really right. tell the story in a visual medium like what was that like well remember i come from a dj background so digging for records i spent you know probably 15 years before i even worked on the film digging for old records you know that was kind of like that's what i that's what i do it's like that's um it came naturally it yeah it came to dig for archive it, for, digging for archive and finding like the the thread between 
who shot this and oh I, I, maybe he has another film that I could look at and blah 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 and a lot of it was was like again it was like building relationships right it was sort of like um, you know I trust that you're going to do a good film mm-hmm. <laughs> and and here's my 16 millimeter of of me and blah 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 you know I, it so yeah it was it was a process for sure but I, I think it all stems from my digging background and and my record collection and and just kind of be having a knack for finding gems essentially with with records so i think that's where it kind of came from in and, yeah. and now rubble kings is a different film mm-hmm. but like meaning that it deals with much weightier topics you know it's it's gang culture mm-hmm. in in new york city again the period overlaps with downtown calling sure. but it's a different feel and and maybe you you'll like this one better. Do you watch Rubble Kings now? Or? I can watch Rubble Kings. Okay, I, <laughs> so we're still watching <laughs> Rubble Kings. We're a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I still have my. I still have. Here's the thing. You know, the thing that you guys got to understand is that like, there was no budget for any of these films. I it took eight years to for this collectively for both of these films because I literally were like shooting them on the weekend, editing them by myself you know trying to figure out how to clear like it was a struggle like it was a serious struggle so sometimes you know like i'll give you an example when we shot like uh you know red alert you know we had one camera and we had like one light that gave out in the middle of the interview so we're like oh man like what are we gonna do you know so we had like run to the hardware store and rig up another light like it was all jury rigged like put together with like gum and glue like it's just crazy right like i mean i will never do a film like that fortunately like i've kind of graduated from that (laughs) stage of filmmaking um but it was you know it was all very 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 just hustled you know like i i put it all together with with um (laughs) sticks and paper and whatever you know but that's the spirit of the movies you know like in i think Let's talk about the the music. Like the yeah. music is a big part of it. You know, as an artist, as a musician, and and you have a song on the soundtrack. Yeah, I was. Um, I actually did a song. I wrote a song called Phoenix with um, uh, Tunde from TV on the radio. And um, my song. I think I was the only female on that whole soundtrack. Yep, so it was sure. Ghostface, um, Tunde, Run the Jewels, Run the Jewels, Killer Mike, who did a separate track, you know, not with LP. Mr. Um, Motherfucking X-Quire. Yeah, Ka. It was a, a yeah. g- really good crew of very talented hip-hop artists. So I came in and did this more punk kind of song called Phoenix. But um, the song is essentially, I think it really spoke to the energy of the movie because it was about rising above adver- adversity and rising above something, you know, a- any circumstance that tries to kind of push you down. So... Um, as an artist, I was very excited because I love the movie. I love both of the films. Um, but this one also in particular just, I mean, Downtown Calling to me inspired me creatively to really go out and do something that my heart felt strong about, you know. Um, Rebel Kings just, to me, felt like something that could really help society. And I really felt it when I saw it. Like, I was like, this movie could change things. You know, it could, whoever watches it is going to walk out of this knowing that no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how violent it gets, you can step out of that and shift it and make it something else, you know. And that's within your own life and your circumstances, whether it's your, you know, p- with people around you, you can make a difference. And I, I thought that was a really powerful message, especially in this day and age, you know. So, yeah. Do you think that when you guys look at, at as creators of art, you know, musician, a filmmaker, DJ, the 
sometimes when I talk about these films, it's easy to like glamorize the old New York. And, you know, I grew up in Brownsville, mm. similar circumstances, you know, mm-hmm. it was poor neighborhood burned down from the the blackout of 77 like mm-hmm. i was never five really recovered from yeah that. never yeah. really recovered from yeah. that like so you're walking through neighborhoods that if you showed people pictures they would think like it's a, a war zone mm-hmm. yeah you know in terms of like it's literally shelled out mm-hmm. looking buildings yeah. and that was just common in, in many of these neighborhoods so i always think back like you don't want to go back to that Right, you know, and you don't want to glamorize that sort of neglect that you talk about, but there was this, this sort of, like spirit that you had to create because there was nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, like looking at today's New York, like do you feel like there's still that ability to create in the same way, like? I think New York has become very difficult for an artist because it's become so expensive that, you know, you're not getting to, you're so much more worried about paying your bills than you are, then that kind of takes over. That's kind of the main focus is you've got to pay your bills and then you can do your art, you know. So you're playing, you're doing this kind of balancing act constantly, which from what I hear, it was very different when you could get spaces for, a hundred dollars share with a bunch of friends or you know everybody paying a hundred and then everybody could focus on their art you could work one night a week and work on your craft the rest of the week so that i think makes it very difficult for a um but i also feel like there's something that's happening right now and just the general environment you know i think all around which i think is adding a certain pressure and tension to all of our lives that i think is causing a lot of art to come out of You know, so maybe it's not, you know, like the buildings are falling apart or anything, you know, like that you can visually see. But I think the tension that we're feeling just in the way things are changing politically and the environment that we're living in right now, the way the world socially is feeling right now is causing art to break through again. Mm. The one thing that came up in the film over and over again is that, you know, uh, it was it's a saying when the mice are away. I mean, when the cats are away, the mice come out to play. Yeah. There was a there was a a feeling, and I think an, a liberating naivete that came along with the art, um, because there wasn't any rules, right? And it, and and if there were rules, the intentions were to break them, <laughs> like off the you know right off the bat, you know. And that was the thing that more and more everybody that I interviewed from that that era, that you know, the thing that keep coming out was like we just wanted to destroy the old guard and burn it down to the ground and that was that you know and it was it came out of the whole uh it wasn't just the the city falling apart it was you know the country at large and 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 politically you know that we were coming out of the 70s uh you know in the 80s it was it was reagan and and reaganomics and and you know it just felt like there was a, a different guard coming into play and a lot of times that's not really talked about in that particular era but you know if you think about it's always like the pendulum that swings back and forth right and and uh culturally and and so like if you think about like what's on the radio right the antithesis of that is going to be some kid in his <clears throat> in his basement saying fuck that shit so like punk rock was like a reaction to like stadium rock right yeah. hip hop was a reaction to like disco right you know street art in a lot of ways was a reaction to like the gallery scene i mean it was there's a lot of parallels there that you could say was just like you know people were just like 
giving the finger to whatever was. Yeah, that was, the so it wasn't just yeah. like, you know, we don't have anything and we're going to make something out of nothing. It was also just like, fuck everything else that came before us and we're going to yeah. we're gonna burn it down and start start again. And and the the spirit of hip-hop is particularly, and I think this parallels with it, with, with disco and with, with street art and with um, um, punk in, in many ways, is that like, you know, w- we don't have anything, but we, we have a voice and we want to be heard and we want to be seen. By all means, by any means, you know what I mean? And it, it's like, you know, you give me a rock and I'm going to make something great out of this rock. If you give me a spray can, I'm going to make something great out of the spray can. If you give me a guitar, I might not know how to play it, but I'm going to make something great with this guitar. And I think that spirit of sort of naivete um, played a lot into the development. And, and it, it um, there was a lot of rules that just needed to be broken. And I think that was the, the that was, and I'm I'm not... To, to go back to your original question, I feel like that is not the same standard anymore. I think people, um, you know, especially in hip hop, it seems like if you go outside of the box just a little bit, it you know, it, it, it is, you know, I mean, I grew up through the golden era of hip hop where it's like if you sounded like anybody else, you were just laughed, laughed off the scene. And yeah. it's, now it's like if you, <laughs> everybody sounds like exactly yeah. like I can't tell one from another. I mean, I, I hate to sound like the old guy in the room, but it's like no, no, no. You know, it, <laughs> it's 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 just anyway. I mean that that that's neither here nor there. But I just definitely feel like at the very beginning there wasn't all these rigid rules, right? Yeah, there yeah. wasn't any in, uh, all these like. Because nobody was making any money, <laughs> yeah. so nobody cared. You the, know, the like, money changes everything. Yeah. I think, like, you know, hip hop in those early days, that same golden era, no one really expected to make money, so money didn't really matter. Now I feel like artists are brands. You know, they want like the making of money is unabashedly yeah a part of it whereas yeah. like making money back in the day in a certain extent you was like you was kind of a sellout like right. mm-hmm. yeah. that was one of the worst thing being a biter and being yeah. a sellout were yeah. two of the worst things you could be <laughs> labeled yeah, yeah as exactly an a sellout was was you'd be laughed off the, you know inauthenticity yeah inauthenticity like at people will see through it right away i mean you know what i mean and like that that was just like something that wasn't tolerated you weren't you weren't respected period you know and and i think that's you know i think that's that's certainly changed and i think new york it it's ironic too because now new york is the most expensive you know city in the world essentially and like you said all of these neighborhoods that were once like my neighborhood the same neighborhood where vans used to pull up and dump garbage out <laughs> that same block is now all million dollar condos yeah. and i can't even afford to live there yeah, and i yeah, grew yeah. up there you know i mean so there there's like there's this 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 you know it, it that's the other end of this of of this equation right and i it's ironic that all of the people that were afraid to move to new york and were moving out of new york and all the you know the businesses that were just like i'm out of here like you know now it's because of this culture and it's because of this movement that people are moving back it's because of like the stories of blondie it's the, because of the stories of the talking heads that all these millennials are now like brooklyn's cool or like yeah. lower east side is cool you know it's it's it, it, and it's all good but the problem is is that it 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 the native new yorkers and the people that were there can't afford to be there anymore nah. and and so there has to be some sort of balance in that in that in that aspect you and know the lower east side was nuts because i tell i tell people like i used to go down there 
on Delancey Street, like the old, like the old Delancey song. Street. <laughs> that's, where, that's where you went to go get your gear. Uh, we, your, your, I, we rode over the bridge yeah. the other day. I was like, babe, you don't even know what it is used to look like. Yeah, <laughs> yo, you, to get your, if you bought a leather goose on Delancey Street, to get it, you went posseed up. Yeah, straight. Because if you, to yeah. get the coat home mm-hmm. was like warriors. Yep. Like you had to take yeah. the J and the M yeah, yeah. to yeah. try to get yeah. back to Brooklyn yeah. with, with your gear. Yeah. No, nah, no, no, no. that was a mission no, no. in and of wow. itself. Yeah. Like you was like, "Yo, man, I gotta get this coke. Can everybody come with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need we need eight nine yeah. cats deep." We had this place in in <laughs> around my way called QPs. It was uh, right on Queens Plaza, and it was a flea market that was the same way. It was like. You know, you went there, you got your BVDs, you got your little gold chain, you got your your Adidas, your Pumas, the airbrush joint, whatever. And you you walk out there, there's the hounds just looking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, <laughs> take a taxi cab over. I'm like, what's going on? It was crazy. It was tight. It was tight getting your gear home. Bridge Project, boy, that, that, that was a different era, man. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the future, like... Can both of you give us like a sense of what you're working on? What should we have our eyes out for in the future? She's got way more, <laughs> way more. Cool I mean, you got some stuff. Yeah, yeah, we got, got we got some yeah. stuff. We got some stuff. Like, give us a backdrop of the movie. You did mention a little bit, right? Like, the contrast between the two films, yeah. but like f- for the listeners who haven't seen it, like, yeah. give a, a a snapshot of what sure, Rebel Kings sure. is all about. I'll, I'll go quickly. Basically. I discovered the uh, the story of the Ghetto Brothers while I was researching Downtown Calling. Uh, and I was like, my God, this is a, an incredible script, right? Because, I mean, it's essentially about gangs in the Bronx, um, but it centers around this, um, this, this one peace treaty that happened um, and this group that put it together, this group called the Ghetto Brothers. Now, the Ghetto Brothers were um, one of the bigger gangs in the Bronx, um, and they were also sort of like politically active as well i mean they did they, they kind of model themselves after like the young lords and the black panthers and um uh it was one of their you know most gangs had warlords where a warlord was was someone that there there was a you know a whole hierarchy they had a president you had your vice president you had warlords you know some some gangs had gestapos that were like the police of the gang so it was very organized. They modeled themselves after motorcycle gangs. So it's that you know the same structure of a motorcycle gang w- would be in, um, and they they dress like motor, mm-hmm. motorcycle gangs as well. So their whole outlaw mentality was it came from motorcycle gangs. Um, so um, as most gangs had warlords, the Ghetto Brothers had actually a peace counselor. So again, going back to the warlord was was like if you had a gang. And I had beef with you, and in and uh, I have a gang. Basically, we would send two warlords to meet and say, "Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to bring guns to the battle, or do you want to just keep it fists, or like you want to do it one on one, or do you want to do you know like a consigliere, <laughs> yeah, in a, in a exactly, mob family exactly, or exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of a warlord, the Ghetto Brothers had a peace counselor, and so his job, his name was Cornell Benjamin. They called him Black Benji. And um, his job was to go out and sort of calm down any beefs that were sort of happening in the neighborhood. So they would, you know, if Black Spade was, you know, going after the, some savage goals. He'd go, hey, brothers, let's, you know, let's talk this out. Let's talk to your, your leaders and, 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 and kind of squash the beef. Um, 
And there was two other characters, one called Karate Charlie, who was the president of the Ghetto Brothers, and he was like the fierce sort of karate, you know, samurai sword wielding, you know, yeah. warrior. And then Benji was more of the peaceful sort of like, you know, uh, uh, peace loving hippie type. You know, he pl- he was in a band. He had a guitar. Um, and, and so there was this kind of yin and yang situation between the two of them. And I, I just want to say uh, a rest in peace to both of them we lost them both this year mm. uh benji just last week and um oh wow yeah and and so it was very very emotional for me he was always very supportive of, of the film and and encouraged me throughout the years to keep going when i was gonna give up on it essentially and he was always sort of like no man you gotta keep going you, you're gonna make it happen so um shout to benji's family and and may he rest in peace um in any case Cornell went on a peacekeeping uh, mission and was killed. And um, as a result, the Ghetto Brothers took it upon themselves to create a peace treaty where most gangs would, of course, you know, react with violence. They decided to to, to do a polar opposite and, and get all the gangs together and say, listen, this is just madness. We keep killing each other. You know, this is just out of control. Um I'm kind of paraphrasing. There's a lot of in-betweens, and yeah, yeah. Cornell's mother was involved, and it was. But that peace treaty was a momentous um, step towards changing the Bronx. Uh, you had, you know, Bambada as a 13-year-old warlord in that peace treaty. All the major leaders from the Savage Coals, Black Spades, uh, Savage Nomads, you know, the Reapers, all Turbans, all these different gangs were there, and and the idea is that after that. Um, you know, invisible turf boundaries that were like garbage cans or like streets or whatever. They kind of like, as long as you respected each other's turf, you could you could travel. Mm-hmm. So that opened it up for, for kids to go to different house parties now. And and the Ghetto Brothers took it a step further. And what they did was they started throwing um, block parties with their band. And they would invite different gangs from all over the, the Bronx to come and party. And you could participate. So if you're like, you know, you played congas and you want to come jam with us, come jam with us. And you could bring... You know, the Reapers with you, bring whoever with you. And, and it became like this sort of like communal vibe. Um, and that kind of predates, I mean, it doesn't predate it. You know, Herc was doing this thing at the same time and DJs were doing their thing at the same time. But it was it, it was a sort of, it, it created a, a, a easier soil to plant the seeds, if Got you know it. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was an important movement that that wasn't sort of talked about too much in history books. It was in Jeff Chang's uh, "Can't Stop, Won't Stop," but I just fell in love with the story, and I felt like it would be a script first. But the more and more I started doing research, um, I started uncovering all this incredible footage. You know, uh, the Ghetto Brothers band had an album; it was <laughs> incredible, and these guys were still alive. I was like, well, you know, I've done it with Downtown Calling without much money. I could probably do it again with with rubble kings and so i just set out and and started you know building a team together and 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 uh getting interviews and start editing um music was also very like a a big problem with with uh rubble kings because it it, with with documentaries archive is is expensive but music is like 10 times more expensive than the archive um and so i got really lucky um with my partner in the music side of it this guy named little shalimar who's an incredibly talented uh, producer and uh, he plays drums and guitar Mm -hmm. and and composer and he he produced for Run the Jewels and he he produced the soundtrack as well. Okay. Um, And, um, you know, I said, listen, I got, (laughs) I don't have much money, but, you know, 
I have all this music that you know you love, like Apache and, you know, yeah, yeah. The, uh, all these different breaks. That, and, and, and he went in and literally, like, he's like, okay, the drum goes like this. I'm going to do it like this. I'm going to play the pianos like this. And, and he, you know, rocked it, like rocked it. Like, he sounds totally, like, on period. Like, he just oh, perfect. totally, totally rocked it. So that was a big step in, in getting getting you know getting it cleared and that was i mean that was what's what held back both these films and, and took so long was the clearances it was the money to 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 clear all these you know songs and an archive um again i'm going winded so no that, that, <laughs> that helped yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what um, do you got coming up for me it's um uh, well on june 22nd i'm actually releasing uh, my first single since uh, phoenix that was on rebel kings and this one's called nine months and um, it's a song that talks about leaving an abusive or a toxic relationship. So I'm actually also going to um, launch a campaign soon after it. Um, uh, it's a nine-month campaign. It's basically going to help raise awareness about violence against women, um, ending it on March 8th of 2018. And, um, yeah, I'm going to keep on playing. I actually have a show in July at Overthrow Underground um, Boxing in the city. And that's going to be on July 17th, so I'm very excited about all that. All right. Yeah. Got a lot going on. A lot of, yeah, yeah. A lot of great things. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I want to thank you guys for, for coming out and joining us. You know, every time we have these interviews, we only get a chance to scratch the surface. I always say, like, people that get nervous, like, oh, we're going to be talking for so long. And then it, it feels like it flies by. Like by. It feels like yeah. it's like, like five minutes. But, yeah. you know, I want to urge everybody, you know, check out the film, check out the music. Thank you. And I want to thank you both for coming in the studios with us. And Appreciate that's it. on point. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank for you, having sir. Us.